Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, podcast? This is Corey from Best Served. On this podcast, Jensen speaks with Michael Duggan of Voices for Chefs. In part one, they discuss Jensen's culinary journey, as well as launching a massive storytelling hospitality movement with Best Served Podcast. Hope you enjoy. I'm Michael Dugan, your culinary host, guiding you through the chef's journey. Join me at the chef's table, where you'll experience stories, secret sauces, signature dishes, and kitchen disasters. In part one, we follow along on Chef Jensen's culinary journey, from working for Debbie Golds, a top chef master's award winner, to working for Troy Gard as Chef Jensen becomes the executive chef at TAG in Denver, Colorado. Then we'll switch gears and learn how Jensen launched a massive storytelling hospitality movement with Best Served Podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to Chef Jensen Cummings, a fifth generation chef. His family has owned restaurants since 1900. Chef Jensen, it's an honor and a pleasure to welcome you to our show. Michael, I'm so happy to be here. So happy to engage with your audience. I am thrilled. And I want to take everyone back to where all of this really started. And I think it really started at an early age. So what was it like growing up in the hospitality industry around the restaurant? Very interesting when you have, you mentioned the fifth generation, this kind of legacy industry, this legacy business, all entrepreneurs, Um, From 1900 Little Falls, Minnesota to uh, San Francisco, two generations were really barmen, restaurateurs in San Francisco. And then my father's three younger brothers all own restaurants in in multiple different states. And so there was always this underpinning of understanding that there was this entrepreneurial hustle in our family, as well as this drive for hospitality, food and beverage. Yet growing up in Southern California, the family that was in the restaurant business was actually not where I was growing up. And so there was, you know, kind of trips and family trips where I would go to. I remember one of my uncles was at one point running a, uh, like a hospitality group that had multiple units at the mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota and going there and going, what is this wild lifestyle that they're living? And then my two uncles own multiple restaurants in Ames, Iowa, where Iowa State is. And that's really where I made my bones and went to culinary school out there. And so taking a trip there with my grandmother and just kind of she very much was somebody who taught me about the legacy of it. My uncles taught me the business and it was really my grandmother who taught me like this is what it means to be a part of our family, which was very unique to me. But the day to day growing up in Southern California, I wasn't immersed in the business. I didn't work 
in the restaurant, so to speak, you know, shucking fava beans as a 12 year old kid, that some people have that really? story. It was always kind of something okay. that was there in the distance, yet also very much in my DNA. So very unique perspective. So when I graduated high school from Southern in Southern California in Vista, California, I, uh, you know, I was, I was really, really <laughs> smart and I was really, <laughs> I was really an outlaw. And I think that, that actually served me well and was a detriment to me in the hospitality industry. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but for multiple reasons, but my uncle said, get your ass out here. You're going to come wash dishes for the summer and, you know, get out of, get out of that place that maybe was, you know, influencing me or whatever. And, and so I went out and I just instantly fell in love with, with the, the chaos of it, with the artistry of it, with the hard work and intensity and, you know, lived in a house with, with four other guys that all worked at the restaurant as well. My uncle's restaurant, Wallaby's Bar and Grill. It's been there oh in my Ames, gosh. Iowa since 1988, I believe. So, okay. so long legacy there. And, uh, and really cool. We made everything from scratch. It's like on USA Today. It's like number 35 sports bar in the country and college towns so on Nebraska football games and Kansas basketball games, right? It's like religion there in wow. the Midwest. And I just... I really like found my people uh, because I was that misfit okay. yet. I wanted to, to really express myself and also, you know, had a, a little bit of that competitive edge. So I wanted to prove myself uh, to my two uncles out there. So worked for them for a lot of years. And so it was a, a unique trajectory because it was always in me yet. It wasn't until, you know, I was 17 years old that I got in the industry, which is still pretty young, but a lot of people, you know, they grew up, they literally, they were changing diapers at table 12. And uh, that wasn't my perspective. Uh, so that was, it was very interesting. I didn't have to like leave the family business to come find it later in life. That's an interesting kind of trajectory. I found it, stuck with it, then tried to leave, then came back, then tried to leave again and, uh, and went on that life path. You know, it's funny because I think about leaving, right? I left for, well, long story short, there was a drive-by shooting in the restaurant. I was an assistant manager and I decided it wasn't for me anymore. And I missed it. I really missed it. And I fell into technology. And that's why the podcast, right? Because it connects me back to my roots. And so it's funny how you talk about leaving, coming back, leaving, coming back. And that sort of rubber band effect. I, I have that as well. But it's so interesting. Sucks you in, Michael. I know, man. It really, really does. And and Clubhouse sucks me in too. And we'll talk about that. But so then what happened? Yeah, you know, I, I went on kind of that chef-driven uh, path was for me, went to, went to culinary school, uh, and then went and tried to find kind of those chefs that I thought could level me up. So I, I went yeah. to Kansas city and worked for Debbie gold. Who's a James Beard award winner was on wow. top chef masters at a really like really defined Kansas city high end and a restaurant called the American, which is, which is classically famous restaurant. Like Hallmark family has owned that that oh building that establishment for a lot of, a lot of generations, I believe. And, and then opened up a place called 40 sardines, which very much was on the forefront of kind of progressive American in the mid two thousands and uh, got to work there. And then my, uh, my now wife was graduating from Iowa state and we said, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? And her brother had just recently moved to Boulder kind of the year before she took a trip out and she said, we're going there said, all right, let's go. I, I knew nothing of Denver, nothing of the Denver food scene, reached out to a handful of chefs that again, were kind of that chef driven, 
uh, type mentality and approach to restaurants and uh, kind of just found the scene out here. It was really great coming out here because, you know, it was it was still a young scene. So okay. I felt like I, w- I was going to be able to maybe put a stamp on it and, and uh, have an impact on what happened in the Denver food scene. And definitely was able to do that and uh, and felt like there was a good foundation here. He had something to build upon. And I think as Denver has obviously emerged over the last decade, I'm feeling very connected to that growth. It was has been pretty meaningful for me. Wow. And, you know, that kind of got me into the restaurant scene and here and embedded here and, and a lot of ups and downs for sure. And, oh, yeah. And... Uh, and finding uh, finding my own way and losing it and uh, being that great leader that uh, created dynamic teams and then being the selfish asshole chef who right. didn't realize that as a leader, it's my job to work for my people and empower them. And every single time I've succeeded, it's, it's binary. And I realized that that was my responsibility and the opportunity that I had. And every time that I failed, because I took people for granted, thought they were lucky to be here, so to speak. And so I had to deal with that. Uh, kind of adolescence in growth as a leader. You see that all over the industry, right? Is that they that abuse that happens and that taking for granted piece. And you don't make any money. You know, it's like you're working your ass off and it's like you need to treat people with respect. And, you know, they work so yeah, you hard. You prey on your own passions often. And the industry at large preys on passion. And there's something to finding that passion and being passionate about what you do. Yet it puts us in a position where we make really bad decisions categorically as an industry. And I think there's a couple of things that play into that. And when you talk about the abuse, it's it's almost like the Stockholm syndrome. Like the, the self-abuse is the worth. The lack of self-worth is mm-hmm. and, and self-deprecation in this industry is something that I think draws kind of those misfits where there's this little bit of a protective blanket of being a part of that brigade. Yet that brigade means that you have to become a caricature of yourself to survive or thrive within it. And that's a huge struggle that we, we have to reconcile. And I think we're seeing the ramifications of that. We burned real hot for the last 25 years. We went from being those misfits to all of a sudden we were the cool kids. This totally me up. All of a sudden, like being a chef was cool. Like I was getting invited, you know, from Colorado avalanche hockey players to like after parties and, and stuff like, you know, stuff like that, like stupid stuff. Oh, wow. Celebrity status, right? Right. And, and I had no business being there. I was not mature enough to understand how to handle that. And and that was reflected in this like trying way too hard, forcing things, not recognizing that the food does not matter. This is the hardest thing as a chef that I've learned. The food does not matter. Interesting. The food is just the proof that you are who you say you are. And the story that we tell and the relationships that we build that's what actually matters. That's what has legacy. That's what creates actually viable, long-term, successful businesses, right? Like you better make good food. You better have a good business. That's the barrier of entry. The thing that creates something that has a sense of belonging and purpose is always the story. And we are in a very unique business, actually. We're in the relationship business. People talk about the people business. Every business is a people business. I don't care if you make sprockets. You have to be able to interact with people. But like the relationship business is is fundamentally different because no relationship was ever cultivated through a product or service. It's always been people that have found a way to build relationships. Product and service definitely create the opportunity, 
right? Like-mindedness, you have similar tastes, you've, you've been to Italy. So other people who like really resonate with that kind of lifestyle and connection to travel and hospitality, but it's always the relationships. So being able to understand that the most important relationship we have is with ourselves. Then from there, it's with the people that we interact with, the people that are a part yeah. of our teams. And we forgot that. Right. And so now we see people don't want to work in restaurants because restaurants are not a great place to work and it's been exposed and we're having to deal with the ramifications of that. It was a big reason that I started best served. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about your, your chef background. I know you worked for a couple other places in, in Denver tag and row 14. Yeah. Tag was a, was a really important uh, restaurant. It was one of the few departures in the early days in Denver of restaurants that weren't the Americana with European influence bistro type scenario. So much of that, I mean, it's still like very pervasive, this idea of new American, which doesn't actually mean anything uh, in, in the food scene. And here we lean very heavily into the influences of, of Troy Gard, which were simpatico with mine, uh, myself being of Japanese descent, growing up in Southern California, spending a lot of time in Mexico, him uh, from Hawaii, also spending time in Southern California. There was a lot of influence from our, from our travels and the people that we grew up with. And, and it was just a, it was different than more of the Midwestern or, or mountain kind of lifestyle. So that was a very unique way that we got to, play a little bit more and I got to kind of find myself as a chef. I found Japanese culture, which is something very interesting. When I was growing up, uh, you know, my grandmother was from Kyoto, Japan. And so we we had this this connection to Japan. But I also was interestingly like didn't want to be Japanese. Like when I was growing up, it wasn't cool yet to be to be Asian in America. And so I had this, this borderline complex, like that I wanted to be white, like, and I was tall and my dad's a six foot six French, Irish, big white dude. So like I was able to kind of hide enough. Uh, but then I remember these moments where people were like, what are you? And I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm Irish and French. They're like, yeah, but what's the Asian? You know, and, I, and then I would like begrudgingly kind of mumble that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm part Japanese. In the food side, that was a struggle as well, because behind closed doors, we always had a pot of rice going. There was always, you know, pickled ginger and umeboshi and things like that, and soy sauce in our refrigerator. Like these are the th things that weren't necessarily when I go to my friends' houses, the things that they were eating. So there was a little bit of that self worth, doubt, and shame. Mm -hmm that I was able to kind of bring out. And so, so many of the things like, you know, like little fermented pickles or natto or these like funky things that my, my grandmother, my, my obachan would bring to the house. When she left, I would like throw anything she left away. I was like making sure that my friends would never see any of this weird Asian stuff. And now that's like foundational to the way that I cook. And so many chefs are influenced by that. But it took a long time for me to find that. So tag was important for me me to be able to uh, let some of that loose a little bit and, and play and uh, show some homage and respect to kind of where I came from outside of the, you know, 
the restaurant side of my family, but bringing that Japanese culture to the forefront a little bit and, and struggling with it too. For another reason, my two younger sisters have both been to Japan with my grandmother. All of my female cousins have been, none of the boys have gone. It was this very strange kind of Japanese culture thing where my grandmother from aristocratic family who they have a Shinto temple in, in Kyoto, like they bound her feet. So she had oh. small feet and walk pigeon foot. Like a lot of these, these kind of cultural tropes that are, are very, patriarchal and so i think she was the black sheep and there was a little bit of like i'm gonna i'm gonna take care of my girls and uh, and so we respected that very much also we're very, very tall and big individuals and she would tell us uh our family's gonna come they're gonna ask you three times to come and visit them and three times you have to respectfully decline this very japanese thing i think of people bowing and bowing and bowing to hand business cards like there's this very very like orchestrated dance that needs to happen to respect family and culture. So I had to oh like navigate a lot of those things as well. So just a lot of, a lot of layers that I would have to sit on a couch and talk to people about for sure. And in my future, I can tell. I can't imagine that, but you were a very successful chef, right? And so in tag, I know that you have a passion for knives cause I've heard on your podcast. And uh, I remember you saying something about you having enough knives to purchase a car. <laughs> yeah, I got a little bit obsessed with the knives. It's funny. Uh, Elon Wenzel. <laughs> oh, man. Elon Wenzel, Element Knife Company now. It's a friend of mine. He was a really prolific sushi chef in uh, Denver, a place called Sushi Sasa that really put uh, Denver on the map. Wayne Conwell, uh, he worked for Morimoto. Morimoto called him the best American-born sushi chef in the country. And yeah. so they have a, a strong legacy there. And uh, yeah, Elon would bring around uh -huh. a knife broker from Japan to his friends at restaurants and started buying restaurants and custom made oh my Japanese knives. And so there was there's this level of obsession. Yet when the tools of your trade are important, having the right tool for the right job, there definitely was was something to the importance of that. And I do get a little bit uh, obsessed in that way. And I think you sometimes have to to kind of find the bottom of whatever rabbit hole you're going down. And so knives was definitely some of that for me. And I, I always pride myself on being a very, very technical chef. Uh, I was much less of the the true artist, the true avant-garde. I was much more of a technician. Yeah. And so, you know, my knife skills were always the best in the kitchen. Uh, I made sure I was very <laughs> competitive, but borderline obsessed with being competitive about it. I had this like famous thing called the chive test where Anybody who sliced chives appropriately would get offered a job on the spot and get paid whatever they want. And in seven years, a few hundred people took it and one person ever passed it because it was a oh. litmus test of everything it means to understand a kitchen and understand your tools and your ingredients and all of, all of these things. And so it was, it was like my... Oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> It was like Paul Bocuse, you know, fry me an egg, right? Like that kind of like understand who they are and then be able to show them where they're starting. Yeah. Because uh, I was ended up with a lot of, you know, the number six or seven person down the rung at, at tag and then row 14 was just coming from being, you know, the executive chef at some other restaurant because we just had this, we were known for kind of um, building up chefs in, in a meaningful way uh -huh. and always looking to like cultivate talent which was a great strength. And then so often it's, it's a catch 22 
I talk a lot about opportunity uh, turning into obligation. We had this thing where anybody could come in at any time and I was there 16 hours a day and I would teach them anything that we were working on that they want to learn. If they wanted to know how to make mole, which took six hours, they wanted to know how to butcher cod. They wanted to learn how to you know, break down a whole duck in 36 seconds. I think I still hold that record. Uh, I can't do it in 36. I used to debone, I used to debone ducks though, man. I'm telling you, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and that, right? And so they could learn those things. And people would come in hours before their shift. And it was this amazing environment of teaching. As we started to expand, then I had multiple restaurants yeah. under my pure purview and so many chefs and other things. We still had that approach, yet there was nobody committed to that. So all of a sudden what ended up happening is this culture that we had created where it was like, come and learn and cultivate yourself and be able to touch ingredients even beyond your station and level up. And we'd bring in people that would help us with butchery and like we, we were very educationally based. All of a sudden people would come in two hours for their shift just to set up their station. Wow. And then there became this culture like I came in two hours to make sure my station was good. Why didn't you come in two hours? And there became this this underlying obligation where if you didn't come in to become an, an indentured servant to to undervalue your physical and emotional labor, then you were less committed to the team. And it created this toxic culture that started as this beautiful thing. And opportunity turns into obligation when we don't pay attention. I think of the quote you know, from, uh, from Batman, you, you die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And I think we've seen that in restaurants and we don't like that quote unquote kids these days are calling us out on our bullshit. Oh yeah. The reality is we didn't want the nine to five. We did not want to sit in a cubicle. I did not want the suit and tie. So we found something different. We found Bourdain's pirates on the pirate ship. And there was like this amazingly beautiful thing about it because it was about us. And all of a sudden we went from, I mentioned going to be the cool kids. Then we became the establishment and we built these businesses that no longer valued the unsung hospitality hero, that band of rebels. It was built for something different. And, and part of it's my fault. I helped build a lot of the, the inequity because we thought that that's what we were supposed to do. And now we're going to blame 22-year-olds for the state of this industry because they're not as dedicated and determined and hardworking because they don't think that getting a plate thrown at your head is a badge of honor. Turns out they're right. And turns out they're calling us out. It turns out they don't want to be a part of the establishment either. We've become the cubicle and the suit and tie, and we don't like it. And we're having to grapple with that. And that is a huge ex existential crisis that we see playing out every single day in the industry when we talk about labor shortage there is no labor issue there's a culture issue playing out a mass scale and mm. it was always going to be that way because we plateaued and we dropped off a massive cliff what do we do next and it was me looking at my my two young sons and saying would i want them to be the sixth generation no it was the answer michael two years ago three years ago I said i have to do something different i have to find a way to build something that millions of people can call their own in the future. Because otherwise, this industry that I love and hate and so many of us do doesn't exist. And so that's what was the real catalyst for Best Served. It was in part to try and highlight building something wow. new and do the work behind the scenes to 
you know, reimagine and restructure a P&L that more plays into the way that this business actually works and restructuring what we call workplaces worth working where we're actually investing in our most valuable asset people. Having the storytelling be at the forefront of that because it's important, you know. That blew me away. That absolutely blew me away. That got me hooked on your podcast. And that's the next phase I wanted to set time for this because I'm like, you're a chef. Let's talk about being a chef, but let's talk about your podcast. So what happened? Yeah, it was actually November 18th, 2019, when Best Served as kind of a podcast, a storytelling apparatus, kind of media and highlighting people across the industry started. And it was a need to highlight more voices. I've always been able to like get attention for for doing interesting stuff as a, as a chef. Uh, sometimes it was trying way too hard and doing stuff I probably shouldn't have been doing to food, but hey, uh, it got me some attention. So like, I, I, again, I read too many of my own news clippings. And, uh, and so I recognize that. I also recognize there's a need to highlight the people that impacted me. When I thought about all the people that impacted me, it wasn't people that anybody knew it was a dishwasher from guatemala it was a it was a prep cook from you know with three kids who she you know learned how to make soup dumplings and pot stickers having never worked in a restaurant yeah delfina serrano one of the most inspiring people i've ever worked with and i was like nobody knows these people these are the most important people that have ever been a part of my success and and my work in this industry so i needed to highlight them and i wanted to hold the space for that to happen and uh and atone apologize and be able to call myself out and and not hide behind the shiny tower of amazing food beverage hospitality experiences that we that we always showcase in the restaurants but behind the scenes it's leave your shit at the door smile it's part of your uniform you're only as good as your next plate these tropes that we perpetuate are killing us literally putting us in a position where our mental health is is in the garbage as an industry we're the most likely to have substance abuse issues and mental health issues and and we don't keep any hospitality for ourselves and for each other so i wanted to to shift that paradigm and it was an audio only podcast uh right now i'm sharing on my personal facebook the first 37 episodes uh each day kind of my my 37 days of Christmas. And, uh, it was just, it's amazing oh, wow. to see how bad I was at uh, doing this whole podcast thing back then. <laughs> and, uh, and it didn't matter. It was just about get the stories out there. Like there's a video of me with a, like, <laughs> like a headset looks like I work at a sprint call center in Mumbai, like cheap headset. I'm in my Jeep outside of my gym with a couple hoodies hanging around me to like your sound. And I'm just recording onto my phone into Anchor to make a podcast. That was it. I saw that, man. I watched that. It was so important for me to just get it out there. And I wasn't worried about imposter syndrome. I said, I'm just going to tell these stories and probably nobody's going to care, but that's okay. And so sharing those first 37 was, was important to me. And, and uh, you know, you just, you, just, you just do it. It starts with one. You have to commit to making and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I feel it. You're like you're one piece of content away from that breakthrough, personal and professional. Make that one piece of content and then do it again and again and again and put in the reps and and uh, you'll find that there's there's something for you there when you start to tell your story and not just focus on the the food, the beverage that commoditizes 
the actual value that essential they don't that doesn't cover indispensable workers bring into commerce and culture in their community and, and we need to really put that on a pedestal so how did it evolve 400 episodes man i mean that's that's incredible i i remember you said that you recorded every day for six months that's a lot of recordings that's a lot of people it was a lot of recording uh, March 18th, 2020, I went live on Facebook for the first time and leading up to that, you know, I had just regular audio podcasts scheduled and it was like March 14th, 13th, something like that. And realized that the shit was hitting the fan. Things were changing. We had, I had a couple of events coming up, had to cancel those. Uh, and then in like a four day span, the right. consulting work, that was actually kind of how I make my money went to zero, like in four days, every project, everything I had going, people pulled out, they're not doing it, whatever. Oh my God. And I had to make a decision, like, what am I going to do? And I had no idea what to do. I was like, the only thing I know how to do is hustle and communicate. So I'm going to just show up for people. I don't know what they need or if they even want to hear from me when all this is going on, but I'm just going to be there and see what happens and see if people need to talk or want to talk or have insights or advice or resources and so on march 18th 2020 went live on facebook no idea like there's another video on on youtube yeah. that uh, is all these bloopers and stuff it's like ridiculous how bad it was like i was using the camera on my dell like mini laptop and the camera's actually at the bottom of the screen so like sometimes i was like typing a comment you can see my hand looks like a yeah. giant claw coming at you it's just so bad <laughs> It didn't matter. I was just committed. I'm going to keep doing this. And yeah, I did. I was on for almost six months, seven days a week would not uh -huh. like unrelenting in the pursuit of just showing up for people. Cause it's all I knew how to do and kept finding people and finding people. And we started building this like best uh. serve team and, you know, and it was all yeah. through, like storytelling commitment to content. Andrew Parr, who's like really my partner in this wrote an article about kind of, people in hospitality and it was on medium and I read it and I was like, let's talk some more. And now, you know, we have a core team of, of six people and, and, you know, we're bringing on interns and we, any given time we could have like 15 people working on best serve projects. And it started at zero. I didn't even know that this was going to be the direction that we've that. taken. We're out here trying to amplify the worth and work of those who feed their community and do it through media and storytelling, do it through, understanding different business models and also especially understanding that the uh, investment you make in people and the workplace that you provide is the real asset that these business has. The investment you make in your people is the only line item and budget that will never depreciate in value. The only one. I don't care what you spend on equipment, on plateware, on, on consumable goods. They will always depreciate in value. People will never depreciate in value if you invest in them. You can look at study after study from Deloitte and all the big boys. You invest in people, it pays dividends. Yet, we are always looking to, to cut and control when it comes to people versus, versus that growth and, and investment mindset. And so a lot of shifting there. And, and yeah, we just kept at it, Michael. You know how important that is made me think of this. So I'm going to throw this in there. If investment in people is so important, why is there so much abuse by chefs 
of their staff? Why, how do you educate them to change their mindset, to create a team environment? That is, that is the biggest challenge that I face. The number one thing is we are so tethered to the way that we came up. It is so hard to see past the, the inequities that that created within us. The, the, the anger that we have, the, the, the self-doubt and the, the forced, forced greatness that we try to put on the plate. And we've got to recognize like that all those things, they're, they are just masking the real thing that we're trying to accomplish. And so the first thing is you have to understand the business that you're actually in. So I mentioned the relationship business. If you understand the business that you're in and the actual value that you bring, you start to prioritize where you spend time, money, and effort, what you're trying to cultivate. And so if we understand that, it shifts the dynamic. But there's, there's this very chicken or egg scenario I have to talk to chefs about a lot. It's like, why would I spend time, effort, and money on them? They're just going to leave. It's like, why would they stay? Yeah. You're not going to spend any time, money, and effort on them. So like it's this, it's this vicious cycle that yeah. all of a sudden, you know, pre-pandemic, we have 73% turnover rates that are basically average for about a decade, you know, at the at the worst of it, which it's worse now, but let's just stay pre-pandemic. 56 days was the average tenure of a restaurant employee. And we're blaming quote unquote kids these days. And and I think that shift in what potential and opportunity you have, and then you know, I go to making a business case. Once I get them beyond understanding that your turnover rates are costing and, and the average restaurant that may have, you know, 30, 40 employees, that's costing you a hundred thousand dollars in, in lost revenue and additional training costs in hiring and acquisition in increase in waste in a decrease in, in efficiency and productivity, a decrease in check average, a decrease in frequency, uh, yet we're trying to nickel and dime our most valuable asset, but we're spending $45 on plates and not willing to pay somebody a living wage. And so we have to like make both the emotional and the business case simultaneously, which is incredibly challenging. And so I point people to a couple places, Michael, that I think are good resources. The number one thing I do is go look at MIT's living wage calculator, like truly understand what it takes to be able to just have a, a, a basic living wage within your community. Don't, don't, please don't do this. I still struggle with this sometimes as I tell my backstory, whatever the hell that is. But like I, we glorify when, when I lived in a house with four other guys eating top ramen, felt lucky if I could put a fried egg on it. Like that somehow is the fire that molded me. Really, it was one of the things that that held me back is staying in that small mindset, and I kept perpetuating that. And so, we need to stop glorifying that and recognize that that's not the reality. Like somebody wanting fifteen dollars an hour when you were coming up and you made seven, doesn't mean that they're greedy or entitled or selfish or not hardworking. Twofold: one, it means that's the reality of the economic state that we're in, and two, you and this is me. We're an idiot. You allowed yourself to be taken advantage of and called it passion and did not put yourself in a position to be sustainable and, and have an equitable and actually profitable business model for people and for the health of the business itself. So that's that's where I kind of go at. Living wage is big uh, and shifting the value prop that we have, right? If you are selling a burger 
Somebody can get a burger for a dollar, two burgers for a dollar, like whatever. It's ridiculous. And there's a lot of reasons that that's the case. So how can you charge 16 or $18 for a burger? The reality is in a sustainable fashion, you actually, you can't. What you can do is you can create a model where you're not selling the burger. The burger is the proof that you are who you say you are. You're selling the story, the connection, the, the history, the legacy, the, the innovation of what is going on that plate. And that's what people connect to. And the burger, yeah, better be good. And all of those barriers to entry, the cost of doing business, but that's the value that we see. And so when I think about the American culture, Michael, we, for anybody listening, thinking about this, like we, we value food less than almost any country in the world. We are always in the bottom three of percentage of income spent on food, which means we don't value food. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The farm bill and the way that that food is is commoditized and the way that uh, the system works. We don't value food. What we do value more than any culture in history is story. Just look at look at look at my Disney Plus and my Amazon uh, Amazon Video and my Netflix and my Paramount Plus. Like we value story. Your podcast is story. My wife is hooked. She's listened once and she's like, this is really good. So if our listeners need to check you out. I'm hooked too. All right. Glad to hear it. The story is so important, Michael. And it's like, what's connect us since we were in caves telling, writing stories on walls. Like we are just such storytellers. It's how we contextualize the world, how we connect to people. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, it's how we, we, we segregate ourselves from other people. It's story is such a powerful medium. I know, you know, I think about that and I think about Rob Walker, who was a New York magazine writer and uh, did this kind of social experiment where he and, and some other writers bought a bunch of mundane, nothing items on eBay, wrote these incredibly compelling stories, resold them and made 6,400 X their money. So I talk about that story a lot because what it illustrates is one, we sometimes are, uh, and look, they, they scammed people for this. So don't, please don't do that. Don't lie. Don't be true to yourself. But what it in, illustrates is that we value story. And so I think about that. If you're in an industry that's actually the relationship business, understand what that means, that you're actually investing in people, your most valuable asset, thinking about that understanding that people don't value it. Nobody gives a shit what's on your burger unless you're telling a meaningful story about it and understand how to develop that story. And then understanding the value that we, we place on story in our culture. Well, it changes the business model completely. And so that is the paradigm shift that we're really pushing, which Michael, I say all of this and it sounds good. This is incredibly difficult and it's a long haul for sure. And it is why, you know, monetizing what best served eventually becomes when it's this like storytelling mechanism is really hard because most people don't believe me and I don't blame them. Like this is completely different than everything we know about the way we communicate within food, beverage and hospitality. Uh, I am nothing if not an unrelenting and maybe naive force of nature and I'll keep at it, you know. Stay connected with Chef Jensen and catch part two as Jensen takes us deeper and brings storytelling to life with his epic storytelling challenge. You will leave impacted and inspired and ready to tell your story. Thanks for joining us today. Follow us on Facebook. 
Find our website in the show notes. Subscribe on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. Leave a comment with five stars and stay tuned for the next episode of Voice for Chefs. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.